Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Michael Hausman to the show. Michael is a technologist with over 10 years of experience in leading engineering and data science teams as his team architects artificial intelligence platforms. He has a true passion for startups where the challenge of rapidly prototyping in less deployment time energizes him. He describes that balance to be the rocket fuel driving growth for early stage companies. Currently, Michael is with DOMA, where he is helping to transform the title, escrow, and real estate industry. Michael is a Harvard graduate and earned his PhD from the Wharton School. Michael is also on the faculty of the Singularity University, speakers on topics such as AI, fintech, and startups. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. Michael, if you could tell us a little bit more about you and how an economist becomes a, the leader of a, a very successful engineering team. It's a great question. It's been a, an unusual road to say the least. Um, I think it started with, I, I was always interested in working with data and building models. And that's what you get to do as an economist. Now that training is really, it prepares you to be an academic, right? To go into tenure track roles. And when I was leaving my program, I decided, you know, this tech world seems really interesting. There's a lot going on. And I had a suspicion that folks that were good with data would be in high demand. And so that was, instead of going into universities, I decided to kind of go the direction of tech and became, you had to shift from economist to data scientist, which mm -hmm. is a little bit of a transition, different set of models that you use, different set of tools that you learn. And then over the years, kind of realized, hey, I don't like to be in this box that I've been put in. So I didn't like just being a data scientist because there were engineers running around building and deploying models to production. And so I said, you know what, I, I'd like to learn a little bit more about what they're doing. And then over time, learn more and more and more and, and gradually, you know, evolve to the point where I was able to build and deploy those models to a production environment and lead engineering teams. So I would say it's certainly not what I thought I was going to do when I, you know, applied to PhD programs many, many years ago. Um, and if I had known that, I definitely wouldn't have gotten a PhD in econ, but uh, it's also a great skill set to have, and it's, it's been a really kind of fun and, you know, uh, journey. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't think anybody ever really regrets getting a PhD, right? I think it's one yeah. of those things for the rest of your life. You get to be a PhD, right? It's pretty amazing accomplishment, let alone from the school that you graduated from. I, you also, as we recognize, we kicked off your professor at Singular University. I think that's a, a, an amazing uh, group of people, if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, it, it's fascinating what they do where, you know, they're bringing organizations in and a lot of executives and saying, hey, the world is changing at an amazing rate. We want to teach you about the latest and greatest in biotechnology, the metaverse, in Web3 and in artificial intelligence. And so, um, you know, I, I got connected with them because I think I'm in one of those things, those Venn diagrams. There, there are folks good at being on stage and speaking, and there are folks good at building technology and AI. <laughs> and, and the overlap of that, I think is, I know is pretty small. And pretty I think small. I'm, yeah. So I think I'm somewhere in that sliver and, you know, gave a tryout and they seem to like me enough that they, you know, I'd say once or twice a month, 
They take me from behind my computer where I'm coding all day. They put me in front of a big group of people and they say, hey, teach everyone, like do some shock and awe, teach everyone about how the world is changing when it comes to AI, how it's going to disrupt the world. Um, and then I get to meet with them and chat a little bit about their journey. So it's really fun and it's a nice uh, you know, diversion from the, the normal day-to-day -day grind of, you know, cleaning data, building models that could be, you know, pretty painful at times. Yeah. I, I don't even like cleaning my car, but I want cleaning data, <laughs> but I, I'm curious. Cause, and I know we went from a pretty easy question. I'm going to hit you with a heavier question. Like what is the biggest misconception you think people have around AI ML? What is, what is the, the thing that people say the most that you're like, eh, eh. yeah. It's a, it's a great question. I think people think AI is this very broad term that like you take a Watson and you just plug it into your car or to your home or to your computer and it kind of solves all your problems, right? And it just, it's it's like a, a big uh, kind of computer, a big brain. And that's not really, you know, it, it may feel like that and, and that's part of the magic of it. But at the end of the day, you know, we train using data typically generated by humans and we try to do very specific tasks, right? We try to underwrite loans. We try to identify fraud. We try to read characters off a page. And then there's other models we build to maybe interpret that language. But the point is, um, it's actually very narrow what these models do. And you add them up, they can do some pretty powerful things. But I, I, I think that's the biggest misconception is people, when you peer under the hood, you realize it's not, you know, magic and it's not like having a human brain. Like it's it's very much a set of algorithms and models that you train using data that was generated from people. And I think the terms, and forgive me, I'm, I'm not a specialist. There's the idea of general AI, like something that can figure things out on its own, that big brain. And then the specific AI, is that correct terms or am I wrong? No, that's, that's exactly the case. And okay. right now, almost, I mean, basically everything we do is specific AI. So it's meant to solve a very specific problem using a data set that, you know, was created for that problem, right? We want to teach a computer what cats look like. So we feed it a bunch of images and say, hey, this is a cat, this isn't a cat, and it learns over time. I think we're probably still 10, 15 years away from what you would call artificial general intelligence. And that looks more like the kind of brain that I was talking about. Like mm -hmm. that's you know, and we could we could talk all day about that, but that's the point at which machines start to feel more and more like humans, right? And they can kind of connect the dots and problem solve and do things creatively that you know that we do. That's awesome. Yeah, that I think the first book I read on AI was I don't know six seven years pre-pandemic, so I have no actual idea of how many years ago it was. It was just pre-March, whatever twenty twenty. So. It's like most of how I reckon things by dates at this point. Yeah. But even then they were saying it's going to be 10, 15 years. Is it, is it really, do you think it's more of that uh, asymptote kind of technology of like, will we ever really get there? Or is it just something that we're just going to keep expanding the specific to be a little bit more, I don't know, uh, overlapping specific more than generic or general? No, I mean, I do think we're going to get there. I'm pretty bullish about it. So the median expert estimate for the, the singularity is, is 2040. And, and what that means is, is artificial general intelligence. Effectively, the machines are not only as smart as us and can learn in the same way we do, but frankly, can kind of program themselves. Like they're going to be learning at an exponential rate. Um, I think 
2040 feels reasonable for that to occur. Um, and I think it's going to take, you know, there's certainly some, you know, some, a lot of time left in the game to get to that point. Um, and the point I make with a lot of audiences is, yeah, it's scary. The, the funny thing is, small side note, I'm I'm a model builder. Like I like working with code. I like building models. I try to give people a framework for doing that. I'd say 80% of my talks is, hey, here's how you work with data and solve problems. 20% is, hey, are the robots going to take our jobs? Are they going to mm -hmm. take our lives? Like yeah. all those ethical pieces. And yet I'd say 80 to 90% of the questions are about the ethical pieces and whether, you know, we're going to have some sort of post-apocalyptic, you know, end of days with robots. Um, I think it's fascinating, but I also think I am no more informed to speak to that than, you know, you or Shelly or frankly, anyone else, like no one knows what that's going to look like. It's really exciting and fun to think about, but that's do, dealing with that is a very, very little, small part of how I spend my day as a data scientist. And I try to kind of make that point. Maybe if you went to MIT, then you could write science fiction about it. That's a, that's a great point. It was, no. it was my choice of undergrad 20 some odd years ago. You're right. I was listening. That was an inside joke from before. And I don't usually do that on a podcast, but it was too easy. I Just laying right there. We'll probably well, edit all this out. So don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, there's Pat talking stupid again. So uh, it, no, I think it's, it's very interesting, right? That whole concept. And, and it does seem there's so much fear around this event. So I'm assuming, because I do think there's people who fall into those two camps of optimist versus you know, the fatalistic, pessimistic, like it's the end of times. It sounds like you fall into the, it will enable humanity more than threaten it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's incredibly exciting. I, you know, first off, just consider in the kind of, you know, timeline of human existence, like we will all, you know, assuming we all stay in good shape and take care of ourselves, we're going to see something that no one has ever seen before in the history of humankind. Like, that's exciting in and of itself, right? No one really knows what's going to happen. I do think that these robots are, you know, technology has generally has helped us over the years. And I think that's going to continue. I kind of tell people when they, when they ask me, Hey, what are the, what is the relationship going to look like between humans and robots? I tell them, Hey, hey you know, it probably is going to resemble like me and my dog, right? In that, you know, robots, will be smarter than us and more capable than us. And, you know, I think they will think of us as interesting and want to make sure that we thrive. I do want to call out that, you know, my dog has no notions of taking over the household. Like he's not threatened by the fact that I'm kind of smarter and in charge. So that makes me a little nervous because I think humans can be a little panicky and we like being at the top of the food chain, but you know, that's, that's the one thing that makes me a little nervous, but it's, it's kind of fun to think about. And I'm, I'm excited, you know, 15, 20 years, whenever it happens. Um, I, I can't wait to see, you know, what that relationship looks like. It's, it's interesting because my dog does think it's in charge of the house and gets severely <laughs> angry at me when I, when I choose to sleep in my own bed, right? Like walk in, she's looking at me like, what do you want? It's like, this is my bed. And then aggravated when I make her move, like I'm moving, but it's under protest, dude. Right. <laughs> so I I think maybe I do already have firsthand experience of AI living in your house. Of Its name is Lola, right? And yeah. it's a boxer. But it's very curious because I do think there's a lot of people who see it as a threat. I, I tend to like, I almost see it as a necessity at this point of like, uh, you know, we, we need, there's so much work that needs to be done 
right? And mm-hmm. I don't know how, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically from a very United States centric perspective of like, for us to, to sustain and to be able to accomplish what we want to, I, I really think it's, it's automation is, is no longer like an, an option. It's a necessity and it'll be interesting. I, I well, and what, what kind of, from your perspective, and again, forgive me, I, I don't know that much about this. What technology would be critical to enable more of that general AI? Is it, is it, you know, is, do we have to have entirely different sets of computers? Do we have to talk about like what, what's going to, it's a lot of processing, a lot of data, a lot of connectivity to make that stuff happen. Um, is there anything that like, oh, this is what's going to have to lay the, the path for that to occur? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a few things. The funny thing, I, I kind of call this out in some of my talks. You know, the algorithms for a lot of these models, they've existed for decades, and yet we're in this kind of golden age of AI. And so I ask people, well, what's changed? What, what you know, why now? And, and the answer is that there has been exponential growth in data, in hardware speed, in software, and kind of open source contributions, and in the numbers of data scientists. And so for me, those are the four things that, really drive this growth. And I think as long as you see that continuing, which I do, I think it's it's limitless. And I think the two big, you know, kicks in the butt that you're going to see in the future, quantum computing is a ways off. I think we're probably five to 10 years away from, you know, commercial, commercial level kind of availability. But I think that's going to be a game changer, right? Some of these models are slow and they take a long time to crunch data, like a quantum computer can do it in you know, seconds, nanoseconds. And then the, the other thing that I think goes under the radar is these, these tools are being democratized in, in a way that you know we've never seen before. Like you have 200 bucks in your pocket and a free weekend, you can learn how to be a data scientist, right? And you have great 12, yeah, it's it, it 12 weeks. It was hard. I mean, you know, looking back, I'm like, Hey, I spent five years in grad school and many years prior to that working with data. Like, what the f? Like, I definitely could have uh, taken one of these classes and shortcutted that whole process. But, but the, the 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 good and the bad thing is these tools are becoming available to everyone, and I think that's what's driving this: is that now anyone can be building models. Now, the flip side, when you ask about, hey, what are the things we need to be cautious of? Like. Yeah, robots coming alive, that's further down the line. But right now you need to worry about like bad actors, right? The same things that the tools that allow us to catch cybersecurity and fraud are the same tools that now are in the hands of bad actors to commit fraud at fraud and violate cybersecurity, right? And so that's it's a it's a like any technology, like nuclear power, you can use it to illuminate the world or blow up the world. And so data science needs to be practiced with some level of kind of ethical, you know, caution. And, and I do worry what happens when you put it in the hands of people that want to use it to steal identities and do all sorts of nefarious stuff. Well, and, and fraud and privacy is part of how you got into this, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'd say I got into it. I started in the HR technology world. So less fraud, but trying to understand, can I evaluate a job seeker based on traits that we captured during interviews by asking them about their knowledge, skills, and abilities. It's a fascinating world, right? And we, we proved with data that, you know, human with machine was better than either one alone. Um, but since then have had a few different forays in different, in, in different industries and fraud was one of the things that I spent years doing. And I was, I was very naive getting into this job and, 
we would have human analysts picking out fraud trends and feeding them to the algorithms to train them very quickly. And at some point, I learned what they were looking for. And I asked our chief fraud kind of strategist, like, hey, you can buy a W-2 online. This is crazy. And he was like, oh, you have no idea what's out there on the on the dark web. Uh, and so it's 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 scary. And hopefully I'm not giving any ideas to, to you or any of your <laughs> listeners. But, I don't um, have enough free time to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> Hold on, let me finish writing this down. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's scary what's out there, and you know, in that case, it was it was. I will say, uh, it was really fun to try to catch bad guys with data, right? You, you see them doing some really bad stuff, making up employers, lying about their income, lying about everything you can imagine mm. on loan applications. It's really fun to be kind of cops and robbers, and to be playing cop and say, "Hey, I've got this data, and I've got these models." Let's see if I can catch these guys and do a better job of stopping them before they commit fraud. I've always wrestled with the idea that as we accelerate these processes and obviously create the potential for more fraud is the reason why we keep going forward because we also create exponentially more value. Is, is it because mm. that's what I always look at like the efficiencies of models, right? Like, the idea that like, you know, if you remember like five, six years ago, it was like everybody was talking about how we're worried. What we're, what are we going to do with all these unemployed truck drivers? Right. And the shortage of truck drivers right now is at an epidemic scale. And I think if you ever drive the tri-state here in Chicago, you'll see they definitely lowered the bar for talent level of driving a truck. Cause uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm terrified. Like I think they're, it, Shelly, am I wrong? Oh, I almost got hit by one yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, they've clearly lowered the bar. So, I, and so I do think sometimes like the the efficiencies of these models, like where, you know, the idea that we can create e-commerce solutions, we can transact business. I mean, think of, I, I just think about like how much I'm one click away from buying something in any situation, right? Mm -hmm. Using PayPal or whatever. Uh, and I just wonder like, is that like from your perspective, like, do you, is that, is, is that something you're thinking you see where it's like, yeah, the fraud is not great, but the value that these systems creates is such a magnitude higher that it's, it's worth doing. Oh yeah. I mean, obviously I'm very bullish on AI, like the convenience it's created for all of us, right? I have a phone that is guessing what I'm going to email next to who it's constantly kind of off surfacing recommendations around and writing you know. the email for you too. Now, right. I know <laughs> I'm, well, I'm somebody told me about like how the new IDEs actually will write a whole section of code for you based upon yeah. like what you've typed before. I'm like, I remember having to carry books and having to look up procedures, right? Like, Oh yeah. Or these kids these days. <laughs> Well, I don't want to, you know, again, I don't want to give bad ideas to more people, but some of the more advanced, there's some generative models coming out that are, that blow me away. They're able to write whole paragraphs, sentences, they can summarize things. And a uh, friend of a friend who will remain nameless said that his kid, uh, or no, it was someone who submitted an AI automated uh, generated essay for a report and got an A minus. And like, this is just the beginning. Like we're, we're, we're the nascent of, a lot of this and then how do you know you can't scan it it's not uh, plagiarized because it doesn't exist it's creating it from scratch so um but anyhow to, to your other question i do think 
the convenience, the value that it's created is undeniable. There, there are some costs to it, right? Um, in, in that as more of our information is being digitized, it creates more opportunities for fraudsters to steal identities, potentially to steal money. Um, but I think it's a net, you know, plus. Um, and I think I often get asked about the uh, job loss thing. And I think honestly, uh, you know, you're, you're exactly right, Patrick. Like everyone, it was years ago that when the ATM, ATM came online, everyone said, that's it, bank tellers, they're gone. They're gonna disappear. No, we need more than ever. Right. Same with cashiers in retail. Once those automated retail uh, machines emerged, everyone said, oh, God, the cashier is dead. No, we have more now than ever. So I actually think that, the you know, you have that complementarity between technology and human. And it actually increases the demand and it doesn't decrease it. So I think, you know, people we've seen this movie before. It was called The Industrial Revolution. Everyone <laughs> freaked out and said, oh, God, the machines are going to take all our jobs. Right. That didn't happen. So I, I, I tend to be less alarmist about that. Yeah. I mean, there used to be whole floors of quote unquote typists in Chicago, right? Where that was like, they'd have a, a legion of typists. And unfortunately the typists, you know, they, they had to go find other jobs. And that I remember the typist revolt of like 1943 when they just said, that's it. We've had no, wait, that didn't happen made that whole thing up typist revolt nobody <laughs> laughed that's some good stuff i'm very disappointed in everybody on this call all right that said uh i do actually have a, a meaningful question um it, it, and i do think like there's a book that came out um i forget exactly when it was but the world is flat right and one of the key comments of that or key tenets of that book that i took away from it other than like it didn't really go the way they thought it was going to go. But one of the things that I think is really important is innovation and then globalization, right? That seems to be the, the, the two coins, the sides of the coin that, you know, like there's innovation, which creates a whole lot of like high value behaviors where you have to have technically capable, talented people involved. And then it gets reduced into more of an operational level where you can outsource it to, you know, the whole globalization model. My contention is that globalization is not going to occur like it did before, where you would say, hey, we could stand up 20 to 50 uh, lower paid resources in a different region of the world with the, the whole salary arbitrage thing. But it will be more, we can stand up three to five people who are going to run models, manage those models, Right, because we've reduced it down to a specific kind of solution that we can put into a model, but somebody still got to monitor, manage, care, and feed the models. So I still see some of that being more of an offshore cost arbitrage kind of situation, uh, but not at the scale that, like, you know, when we when we start pushing software development offshore, where it's like we're going to have a twenty-person QA team located in in India. Like that's not going to occur next time. And I think even the QA teams are going to get shrunk down because of automation and the application of, of, you know, machine learning to actual software testing as well. What are your, what's your take on that? Is that like, am I off the wall goofy? Uh, is that like, yeah. What's your take? Yeah. I mean, I, I do see uh, as more and more software, first off as technology infrastructure has migrated to the cloud in, you know, you're moving from on-prem to off-prem. So that creates, and you know, you have AWS and Google Cloud and Azure and, 
that makes it very easy to kind of distribute all that technology so that you kind of don't need to be, you don't need an office, you don't need to be in one place. And frankly, I've seen likewise workforces in technology. Like I, I can't think of any companies, especially post pandemic that have a bullpen of engineers sitting in the same place and working. I think it's become increasingly easy to collaborate uh, with technologists that are remote, that are offshore. And so, you know, I think I've seen that kind of spread out. And the same is true of AI, frankly. Like these days, uh, I can't remember the last time I trained a model based on a, a data set that was sitting on my laptop, right? Mm -hmm. Like nowadays, everything I'm doing is in, is in the cloud, right? Google's created some really cool, what are called collab notebooks that allow me to build models in the cloud because my machine isn't that fast, but I can go and requisition a machine and I can run it and then it shuts down as soon as I'm done training my model. So, you know, I would say, I think the nice thing is that this technology has made the world smaller, right? In that it allows me to collaborate with others in other parts of the world on technology that exists in other parts of the world. And in some ways, you know, and I'm working right now remotely with, you know, engineers and data scientists that are, you know, some are offshore, a couple are here in Texas, but um, it makes it very easy to, to work with people, you know, that are, that, that are near and far. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm seeing that increasingly. Um, and and I, I don't know whether you're going to see kind of cost reductions. Like you said, I don't know if that arbitrage opportunity means that jobs are going to flow offshore and you're going to see the cost go down. Like if anything, I think um, you're going to see those wages go up as they're able to tackle, you know, take on more and more complex modeling and building of technology. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I know when we spoke before you, you know, you've worked at a lot of different types of organizations. So I'm going to pivot a little bit here. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's, we're in an interesting time where, you know, after the pandemic and, and obviously everybody's focused on digital, uh, there's a lot of buildup at a lot of the large organizations that we would know from a technology standpoint. And now there's a little bit of a cooling off of that. Uh, I know you have experience working at big companies, working at startups, everything in between. And, uh, you know, I'd like to get your perspective of what is it, you know, what's the difference between the two, right? Like uh, you've been at a big company where they're incubating startups and, and what, you know, what is it, how do you do that successfully? Cause I think there's a lot of organizations that struggle with innovation after hitting a certain size. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, I, th I think my answer is probably the same as most, which is it's it's speed, right? Your startups can are smaller, maybe a little more resource constrained, but can move faster. And so I know for big companies, they have those resources, right? But they often get bogged down in meetings and process. And it becomes very hard to uh, allow, you know, bring a new product to market quickly, to iterate, to test it. The, the model that I've seen work the best, and frankly, it's the one I'm most familiar with because I'm you know, in it right now, is um, having that big company act more like a kind of venture capital fund than a parent company, right? And what I mean by that is, hey, share, you know, setting aside capital, right? So you, you lessen the burden to raise money, uh, access to customers. If you're a big company, you have customers already, you can kind of send them to that startup and say, hey, try this new product that we're incubating. Uh, and then, of course, kind of 
insight like human capital, like thoughts on anything that the parent company can share about what, you know, data they're accessing, models they build, like any of that, not those learnings. So you can kind of skip steps along the way and not make all the same mistakes. I think that's the best way to do it. The minute you start sharing, you know what, we're going to share infrastructure, we're going to share data, you know, in, in this one big data warehouse, that's when that you lose that agility, right? And, and it makes sense. Hey, if you're a big company, if you're a big public company, you need to be buttoned up, you have compliance concerns and so on and so forth. But it's, these things are really hard to pull off. And so that, that's the relationship that I've seen work the best, which is like, Hey, be like a VC with some customers, right. And help me succeed. Um, but don't, you know, put me through compliance training hell. Like let's, let's, let's all agree that like my time is best spent building out technology and working with the team and not, you know, in endless meetings and, and lots of HR driven activity. Yeah. I, 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 that is my experience as well. But the second you try to bring this little nimble vehicle into the mothership and start focusing on security compliance. And, and I think that's, that's the, the original sin there is like, Oh, we're going to put your data next to our data. It's like, nah, let's leave them in different places, right? Because the exposure is it's definitely it's a it's definitely a threat to the large organization. So it's like you still got to put that firewall or just never even right use APIs, connect another way. But yeah, definitely. Uh, another interesting comment that you know you've brought up in the past is product market fit, right? So mm -hmm. you've worked with a lot of organizations that are moving quickly, right? And and it's it's always interesting to me with startups and, and early stage organizations, how much pivoting is just part of what they do, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's like you're, you're feeling your way, trying to figure it out. Um, when do you know you, you've got it, right? Where you've, you've pivoted enough and you, you feel like this is the one, because there's a balancing act of persisting of like, hey, just because it's not working doesn't mean we turn we may have to go a little bit further and, and feel more friction, but at the same point in time, you have to have the wisdom to know, all right, that's too much friction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, it's, it's hard to, to describe it. I would say the one for me, one of the telltale signs is when it feels like it's moving from a pushing motion to a pulling motion. So imagine, you know, mm. you're out there in the market and you're saying, Hey, pay attention to this, check this out. And initially, almost always you're hearing crickets, right? It's like you're, you have to literally, in, in many cases, we pay users to work with the product, right? Or we pay them for their feedback because they can't be bothered. But the, the minute it flips and you start getting people saying, hey, could you do this? Or like, we'd really like X, Y, Z. Or, you know, and they're asking for stuff like in advance of you soliciting feedback. That to me is a sign like, oh, wait, you stumbled on something, right? Like they clearly value this. They don't want you to shut it off. Um, so I think that's one of the key signs. And, and you start to feel this being pulled in a certain direction. And then it's, you know, you find it's almost hard to keep up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and meanwhile, you know, the challenge I mentioned, you know, you kind of mentioned at the top of the show, but, you know, as a econ engineer, data scientist, and economist, I want to build things to last. Like I want to be very buttoned up. I want to make sure that whatever I build isn't going to break, but you have to resist that temptation early on. Like 
That's I've worked with outstanding engineers that were not well suited for a startup. And the reason is we spent a ton of time building out infrastructure and tests. We had to test everything and we spend weeks building out tests that didn't end up being used because we didn't build the right thing. We'd end up building up tests. It's like building a building and scaffolding and then realizing, oh shoot, the building we want is actually has to be, you know, 50 feet in a different direction. Like, oh shoot, well now we have to tear down the scaffolding. There was no reason for us to build that. So that's that's one of those challenges, which is like, as you're getting the product market fit, but you're still pre-product market fit, like you have to wait, will this thing break? Can we kind of, you know, smooth it over and just, you know, put spackle on top of it and and assume that we'll go back and fix it once we've gotten to that that point of product market fit. Totally personal question. Did you like no. to break things as a kid? <laughs> I I liked learning how things worked. Okay. I think I You like to reverse engineer like, things? I like to reverse engineer, but unfortunately a part of that process is is occasionally you have to break things to totally. be able to look inside and say this yeah. is oh this is how it works. I can make this. Yeah. I, I I have a son who like, okay, can you put it back together now? No. <laughs> it just doesn't one way. I tried. I tried. I <laughs> I thought I had it. And, you know, he's gotten better at it where he yeah. is. Like, that's to your point of like the first time you start taking things apart, it's just kind of like a mess. And it's yeah. like, a, but then you start to learn and you start to figure out that I can see it. So I think it, it's a really, it, it's an interesting personality type that thrives in in the opaque. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's really important when you're putting together a team, as you said, you know, there, there's, it's always about yin and yang. It's about a balance of like structure versus speed, as you said, uh, quality versus speed. But at the same point in time, you know, that's actually in my experience is that's the human component of balance of, do you have enough, you know, speed people and do you have enough break people, right? Like people who are, able to put the brakes on and say, uh, that's too fast. Right. And it's a little bit of like knowing how to use the, the personalities as throttles of like, uh, we're comfortable with going fast because trying to make people who, you know, maybe on the disc profile, a little bit super high on the C they're going to struggle a lot, yeah. but you don't want just all D's in there either. Cause that's just a mess. Right. And so like the, the balance of like go fast, but actually create something that's, it's just, it's such an interesting uh, challenge to, to find not only are they technically great, but also they, they thrive in this. Cause I, I think a lot of people when they say, Oh, I want to work for a fast growing company, not sure they know what they're signing up for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great point. And, and especially with has somewhat of a background in HR technology. And I did some work on job assessments, like, I think there's a world where you could assess someone's either their disc profile or it could be their Enneagram or Myers-Briggs and just look at culture fit from the perspective of how early and late is this company? How fast do you want it to move? Because you're right, when you when you mash it together, I've been in companies where you have uh, slow moving people in a startup, which kind of kills innovation. Um, I've seen the opposite, which is you put a cowboy in a big company. And by the way, I, I may or may not be that example. Like that you can end up with trouble there. So, and I, and I know my strengths and weaknesses. I'm a startup guy. So I think it's it's a great point that a lot of times culture is just those personalities. And you put them in a group and you say, hey, how well do you work together? And how quickly can you build? And do you are you comfortable living in the gray? Or do you want a more buttoned up environment where 
you do want to sit in on compliance meetings. Like that is something to enjoy doing. Yeah. I couldn't think of like a bigger threat to like me of like, Pat, we're going to have compliance meetings. Like somebody's having compliance meetings. Right. But (laughs) there's no way I'm going to be there. If I'm there, trust me, I'm asleep. Right. So there's no reason for me to go. (laughs) Right. Like there's, there's just, there's no way. And I do think this is an important awareness for people to have about like, Hey, uh, you know, it's important that you find organizations that move at the speed you do, or even like at the startup, when you're talking about like um, somebody we had a conversation with earlier today, there's a lot of people who are founders have awareness that they can create things, running things, maybe not so much, yeah. right? Like the, the running the day to day and like to understand like where you're really going to, you know, and I think some of like the bigger challenges, people are like, this is really stressful. And why do I keep picking these types of opportunities? And when I meet people like that, I'm like, because that's what you are. Right. And at some point you just have to, accept that and accept that like you're, you're built for chaos and like it, yeah. it's awesome right because we live in in a, in a world in a country where these opportunities exist imagine being wired for chaos and having to live in in russia i know i'm probably getting in trouble for picking on russia maybe not so much right now but the end result is like think about it if like your only option was you know state controlled organizations you, you just what a misery that would be Right. I'm like, uh, you know, I got to go run it by the political officer every day. Like, you know, it's compliance in a very physical form on a daily basis. I'm sure we're going to cut all this out because like, there's no way like, <laughs> my crazy rants on Russia are going to make the cut here. So but I do think like just to, to bring that back to a point, I do think like uh, it, it's it's an interesting scenario of like finding, you know, that work. We, I get in trouble for this one as well. The work life balance of like. I don't seek it. Right. I don't tell people not to seek it, but I really am very frustrated at times when people are like, well, you know, you really should focus on work-life balance. I'm like you should really mind your own business. Right. Or it's like, look, I, oh, I, it doesn't suck that I enjoy working hard. Right. Like I could go play golf, but I hate golf more. Right. Like I'd rather, <laughs> rather build things than play golf. Right. Like I don't see why that's a bad thing. Like, I don't need a hobby. I like building things. So yeah, I do think we need to encourage people who are wired thusly to seek these opportunities because it really will be quite fulfilling uh, for, for those who are, who are wired for it. Yeah. And I, I, I echo what you said, which is it's neither side is a shortcoming. It's not like you're a good or a bad person because you want more or less work-life balance. It's just you're wired a certain way. Like, figure that out about yourself and then look for your, there are organizations I promise you that suit your preferences in terms of work-life balance and speed and all those. So yeah, I'm, I think I, you, you and I are wired pretty similarly, Patrick, Shelly, I don't know where, where you are on the spectrum, but um, yeah. yeah you, you, for sure. Yeah. 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 It's a, it, it, it definitely, it, it's, it's, in, yeah. And to your point, I explain this to people as like, it's a yin and yang. We need the, 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 the people who do things regularly and focus on making things a little bit better versus making something new. Right. Mm-hmm. We need those people to actually make money. Mm-hmm. Right. They're yeah. the profit people, right. The, the, the innovation people, they're the money tomorrow people, right. Yeah. The other people are like how we make money today. And without them, we can't fund all the fun stuff. So, yeah, I would never get like better than or because without each other, 
uh, nothing happens, right? Mm-hmm. Without without the the troublemakers, there's no forward movement, and without you know the steady eddies of the world, there's no traction. Yeah. So it's it's really it's 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 the balance, and I, it, it that's where I think it's interesting in the organizations, which way you lean. You know, do you have more, you know, you know, momentum people, or do you have more traction people, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting stuff. Well, I'm sure we could keep going forever, Michael, uh, but we have to end. Uh, Shelly told me, she's like, that's it, 49 minutes, and I'm cutting it off. <laughs> Shelly, you're so cruel. She's like, I've got rules, Pat, and I'm sick of you. And we had a blowout earlier today. It was not fun. So made all that's that up. That's right. the next podcast. That's right. We'll just carry that into the next one. Like, <laughs> this is my version of a cliffhanger. Oh, I wonder how it ends. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so forget you netflix i got this covered so uh anyway so michael thank you so much i really appreciate you coming on it was great episode really enjoy getting your perspective and your experience and we wish you nothing but success in the future uh, and hopefully maybe we can get you come back on uh maybe next year love it thanks again this was fun Uh, We also want to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.